0: Hi, I'm Craig Tiley, and you're listening to the Functional Tennis Podcast.
1: Welcome to episode 48 of the Functional Tennis Podcast. This week... We have the great pleasure of speaking to Craig Tiley, the CEO of Tennis Australia and the director of the Aussie Open. Craig tells us all about his coaching success in college tennis in the States and then moving to Australia to work for Tennis Australia and the different jobs he's done there. We also talk about the challenges of the current COVID situation and looking at the other Grand Slams and the Aussie Open in 2021. He tells us the first time he met Roger Federer. And we've two great questions sent in to us by our Instagram fans. It's a great episode. I hope you enjoyed. Before we get started, make sure to go over to our new Instagram account called Functional Tennis Podcast and give us a follow. Shout out to our podcast sponsors, Head. I've been using Head Rackets since I was a kid. I first had Agassi's Bumblebee Racket, which I absolutely loved. And I've been using Heads on and off really ever since, but mainly used the Radical. I have tried to use the Prestige, but... I find I wasn't really good enough. Always struggle on the double-handed backhand with it. The radical for me allows a bit more room for error and is a bit more stable for me. So uh, thank you guys. Okay, let's talk to Craig. Hi, Craig, how are you? Good, thanks, Fabio. Good to be talking to you from the other side of the world. Uh, It's amazing to have you on board. It's a really big privilege to have you speaking here. And yes, so thank you very much. And can't wait to find out all about how you became the top man in tennis in Australia and one of the most loved men in tennis. Anytime you speak to a tennis player, they rave about what you've done at the Aussie Open. So can't wait to hear about that. Before we get started, let's talk a little bit about your early tennis career. I know you were a very successful Coach in the states. How did you get involved? How
0: did you end up in the states? Well, let me start out by saying it's always difficult to talk about these things in the context of the of the current climate that we're in, and and uh, and having to you know isolate and, and uh, do all the things that we need to do to protect our health system. So, so I I apologize for being a bit late to the call because as you would know, we spend all day in front of the screen and you know, on video conferences, but it's all good. But um, in answer to your question. Um I how to I get to the US? I, I always as a young kid loved the game and I started late, I only started 13, 14, which is considered extremely late. And I, I had aspirations to be a, a great uh, to be a tennis player and, and I loved it. I loved training and playing and was never able to realise that goal and was fortunate enough, I think, where I realised that early enough where I didn't just carry on trying to make it all the way through to my 20s and 30s. So once I'd finished educating myself and finished my military service and done the obligations I had to do in South Africa, I got on a plane and went to Europe and played a little bit of tennis there and then and then thought I was going to go over to the U.S. and get an education. And I went with the plan to only stay for four years and, and ended up staying for 18. So I think that's kind of been my modus operandi because the same thing happened in Australia. I was planning to come for a few years and I'd been here for 15. So it's... So, I'm doing the continent hopping and really enjoying it.
1: You're making a statement wherever you go and you you were a coach. So you end up, you're a successful coach at Illinois. You were coached a year multiple times. How did you move into coaching?
0: Well, I think, you know, when you have love of the game, which I'm sure many people that listen, to your podcast would and and uh, there's many different career opportunities you have in it. You can be administering it and coaching in it and playing in it and officiating in it. But it's, it's it and it's such a global sport. It's got a common language because it's you know it's the lines of the tennis court and the height of the net that determine that commonality around the world, which is great about our game. I did match my my love of the game with my desire to help people, and uh, those two things kind of just came together, and and I I got a great. Deal of personal fulfillment and professional satisfaction out of out of helping others and using this as the vehicle for that. And when you love what you do, uh, you're willing to constantly, always improve and be in the lookout for ways to get better and learn from others. And and uh, and I look back in hindsight now, and I think uh, on on reflection, I should say, and, and I think that because of those two things the desire to help people and the love of the game I was able to learn a lot and uh, and always be open to learning I still am today and, and I think that is one of the one of the marks of being able to be lucky enough to have have some success so I, the coaching side I loved it and I also enjoyed being uh, I like I like challenging the status quo and I enjoyed being told that things wouldn't happen and uh in fact, you know, when I first started there, one of the first assistant coaches I had was was the famous Stuart Doyle uh, from uh, from Ireland and uh, who played at the University of Arkansas. It was great to have Stuart part of the team. And we started on a journey of success and, and uh, you know, in a period of, of 13 years, we took a college program from nowhere to the, the best in the country for quite a few years and, and ended up having so many players that went on and did really well. I mean, Kevin Anderson from South Africa was one of them, his top five in the world recently. And um, so we've had... It's it's been fun to watch the players have success, and it's been fun to watch the program have the success that it did. But I did. There was no secret. You just wake up every morning do the best you can do. Treat people well. Treat them how you want to be treated. Because you always remember you're going to meet the same people on the way up as you do on the way down. And just work as hard as you can to and to constantly look for improvement. And good things come. It's a long journey. It's not a short journey.
1: I completely agree with you. But the daily grind, getting up and putting in the hard work. But just getting back to, you mentioned Stewie Dial, some listeners here, we have some listeners in Ireland, and they will all know Stewie Dial, obviously for his,
0: his great tennis abilities. W- what was he like back in the day? Well, I should say, if you know Stewie Doyle, well, I don't have to say any more. <laughs> One thing that he did teach the athletes, which I'll, I'll never forget, and it still resonates with me, is that, is what it takes to Win a point and what it takes to be good. And the amount of effort and pain and the work you've got to go through to do that. And uh, his attitude, his competitive attitude on uh, on improvement rubbed off on everyone that he coached. And that's why everyone loved being coached by him. And also he was one of the few guys I've met that would be willing to go through the same pain himself uh, to prove to the others what it is versus just telling you what to do.
1: Yeah, I I completely agree. He actually hasn't changed a bit. I don't think so. His his strive to improve every day is amazing. And, you know, he'll play with anybody. He'll play with a wall. It doesn't matter what level you are. He'll just play and... He just wants to get better. And look, by playing with him, you're going to get better. And I absolutely love playing with him. And he's so fit. Like, I'm a few years younger than him now, but I'm just amazed at how fit the guy is. And yes, yeah, so really, it's a great privilege to be able to play with him. And for him to put me in contact with you last year when I was down at the Aussie Open, I briefly met you and you sorted me out with some great tickets. So I, re- I was really appreciate that. So thank you very much, Greg. So when you finished up in the
0: States, you did, did you go straight to Australia? Yeah, you know, it was uh, early 2000s. Um, we had won the national title. We had, For a couple of years, we were undefeated as a team. We had great players and I was really enjoying it and, and loving it actually and loving ma- making a difference to people's lives. And, and uh, But then you reach a point where, you know, you want to challenge yourself to do something different and uh, and I was approached about this job here and, and the next thing is I spoke to them and then the next thing, you know, it was a very quick decision. I was here and, and up and packed my bags from um, Champaign, Illinois, just south of Chicago and, and uh, got on a plane and flew over to Melbourne and uh, I was given the first job as being the director of player development to come and oversee their performance program and and to try and change their their performance program because as good as Australia was in its history, it had been floundering during that period there weren't many players ranked in the world and and uh, they wanted someone from the outside to come in so i didn't really i knew I knew people I'd met before but i hadn't worked with any of them so it was uh, it was going to be a a challenge and and starting completely from the bottom to try and build something up. And uh, that was great. And since I've been here, I've been here 15, nearly 15 years, uh, 14 years. And I've had, I'm on my third different job. So uh, I think staying that long in one job is too long, is my view. So, you know, about once every five years, have a change. Life's too short, not to challenge yourself a bit more. But I've had, I'm on my third, different job and, and my last one so it's uh Is it yeah because it's i can't go anywhere else after this one
1: and so you were you were director of player development and now you're the ceo of
0: tennis australia what was the in-between job well i, I started as just a director of player development then after a couple of years i became the director of tennis and the australian open and then uh and then six years ago i stayed on as the director of the australian open and then also the ceo so i'm responsible for the growth of the whole business now
1: Okay. Well, first of all, you did a great job as player development. The Aussies just have so many good players coming through at all levels from the junior to the senior. So I'd love to know a bit about your magic there. We did briefly speak to... Sorry, it was a long conversation with Liam Smith last week. Oh, yeah. And he talked highly of you. He was part of that
0: team for a while. Yes, he was, yeah. No, we recruited a lot of coaches internationally. Liam was one of them. And we've we've had some really good coaches. And uh, I believe in... uh, there's a lot of great Australian coaches as well. And I and I believe in um is is really, you know, spicing things up a little bit. It's a global sport, you know, get global partners, get global coaches, get global expertise. Um, and even to this day, you know, even in our in our leadership team here, diversity is important, whether it be men and women, whether it be people of different cultures and backgrounds, I think that's all critical. And um and we're um you know, so I was proud at the beginning. We started a we overhauled the whole player development program and redesigned uh, everything and, and went through some key principles. And I'll make that suggestion first is you have to decide what you're trying to achieve and, and be very clear on what you're trying to achieve and, and then once you've solved that then uh, and then you're gonna set a plan on how you're going to achieve that. And you know, and then and then you just stick to the plan every day. It's gonna change based on the circumstance like we're going through now, but sticking to that plan and you'll eventually get there. And dream big, you know, I used to Tell the players that if you want to dream of holding the Australian Open trophy up, you know, have that dream and, and every day work towards making that dream a reality, and it'll come true. It does. So, it's, so I think it's I think it's really important to approach it that way, and we approach the. Player development that way, and and now with the Australian Open and the um you know and how we've approached the event uh you know it used to be the fourth cousin of all the slams and and I think we've really grown it to where it's now a major player amongst the whole group. From
1: what I gather, it is the most loved one out there. Players absolutely love it, and the fans love it. and when I was on my way down there people were saying it's more of a festival with some tennis thrown in. But overall, it's great. This isn't really. We don't have the time to talk about this today, but a quick bit of info on. What can countries, smaller countries, let's say Ireland, for example, who have players of aspirations to become top pros, but really nobody's broken
0: through the top 100 ever? What do you see is the problem? First of all, I say to break into the top 100 in any profession, to be a top 100 doctor, to be the top 100 you know, football or whatever it is—it's it, not easy, and it's—and particularly in individual sport, golf and tennis, its and the the individual nature of the, of these of these sports make it even harder because you you got no one to t- to turn to to partner you and to lift you up and to help you be, help you get better. So for a start, it's very difficult. Then everything has got to go right. You've got to have—you know—you you need to have the right physical characteristics. You need to have the right attitude. You need to have the right parents, uh, the right coaches, the right early influences. Uh they need to be around the right peers, the right training environment and um and if you have that then you have then you have a chance because then you've gotta stay healthy uh you've gotta progress on the journey uh you've gotta be willing to go through pain like you've got to maybe, you gotta maybe go go and relocate and live another place so you can be around good players or a larger number of, of of good players so for all that to happen, the success that you see players today it doesn't happen by chance. You know, it doesn't. Uh, it's, there's a lot of sa- sacrifice that's gone through that. I mean, everyone thinks that Roger Federer, for example, is just breezed into being one of the greatest of all time. But you go back and talk to his mom, and talk to his dad, and talk to his, his family, his brother, talk to you know, uh, talk to now his wife. And The commitment that everyone's got to make for that level is just is incredible, and I don't think people realize that. Um, and the bottom line: there's a few ingredients that always work; that'll always guarantee success. Number one is hard work. Number two is willingness to listen and learn, because you don't know everything. You're going to get everything from everyone else, and to and to really and to take it on board. And number three is just to never give in, never accept no for an answer, and never give in and if you can have that as approach uh with everything you do uh you pretty much guaranteed success but you have to live it every single day every single minute of every single day you can't you can't have a uh a, you know it's a it's it's no different if you you know, if you're on a training regime to run a triathlon and you say, okay, today I'm just going to binge on McDonald's burgers and fries and, and milkshakes and then I'll be okay the next day. You won't. It may take you a week or two weeks to rebound the game back to the next level. So so it's just, it's got to be an everyday commitment. And I've always said that, you know, a player that gets to five all in the fifth set or the third set and it is, you know, it's got break points and is about to break to serve for the match and it's the finals of a grand slam. That's the player that every single minute of every single day Took care of it because they will have the mental edge when the, when it gets to the very end. So it's not easy. So yeah, so if you have all those things, you can make it happen. It's not easy, and I I don't look at it as a, as a case of uh, you know if I look at Ireland, I mean, geez, how many sports are Ireland great at? There's so many, and uh, you know tennis historically, its history hasn't been up there amongst the success of their other sports, but it does mean it can't happen tomorrow. True. Well, that's
1: what I find a bit strange is that like golf is a similar game in a way you're on your own and they've done quite successful in golf. So I've always I've struggled to see personally what the issues being from the just the tennis side that no, not one guy, there's always one guy who seems to break through in Ireland in most sports. So as you said, hopefully we'll come and we're not too far away from
0: it. Yeah, no, it depends. I mean, the weather has a bit to do with it as well. I mean, let's not forget the the cost of training and training environment. Because golf, you can go to the golf course, it can be raining like crazy or winds are crazy and you can still go out there and you can't do that as easily in tennis. So it, it does, it's got more barriers, that's for sure. But, you know, the great players overcome the barriers. True, they find ways. Your
1: three properties, characteristics of these successful players, do you think that's something that's inbuilt or something that the parents have taught them or people they've met along the way have taught them?
0: That's a good question. I actually don't know the answer to that because there's all a bunch of research on all those things. I think all can be trained to an extent. Uh, if they are just like innate characteristics, and you train them, well, then you're a winner. But I think I think that to an extent, they all can be trained. And working hard can be trained. You know, learning to listen and you know the thing about learning to listen or, or, or willing to, willingness to listen and learn is 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 reliant on how much you absorb. So that that's yourself. That's that's a harder one to train and then never give up to point can be trained but it's everyone has different thresholds of pain Yeah, you know that's why like you know when you're in the military and you're green beret or maybe SEAL you know you probably have a higher threshold for pain than I do because I don't feel like doing those two things so
1: it's like <laughs> yeah, so yeah.
0: everyone has a different degree of threshold so it's like uh, Stewie Doyle he has a higher degree of threshold of pain than I do but uh, physically he does maybe mentally I have a higher one than him I don't know you can go and challenge him on that
1: <laughs> yeah he, he won't be happy with that no. he <laughs> will start training. He'll start training. Just take you down, Craig. Join over 10,000 people who have downloaded our free match and practice PDFs over at functionaltennis.com forward slash downloads. Our match and practice PDFs help you plan and evaluate your matches and practices. We have some other free downloads there for you, too. So make sure you go over to functionaltennis.com forward slash downloads. So you briefly mentioned Roger Federer. Uh, while you mentioned, what's your first memory of Roger
0: meeting him? Actually, it was in Switzerland. I was friends with his his former coach, uh, Peter Carter. Unfortunately, passed away. And I met Roger when he was young, and it was it was in Switzerland on, on the clay. And I'm trying to think whether it was in Basel or whether it was at the Geneva Tennis Club. But I remember, I remember watching him, and he was just uh you know looked very raw. He's the way he hit the ball, and a lot of balls were going out. He looked very relaxed. It looked like he's having a lot of fun. And uh, and I remember from when I looked at my technical eye on his swings, I thought, "Geez, he's got some really great." It swings. The backhand was beautiful and he could the forehand the forehand the way he got the extension on the serve and he kinda of had like he kinda of floated and had a lot of fun with the short ball and he used to kind of smile where he would like pull someone out the court, then chlock a volley into the open court and uh oh geez, this guy's gonna be good. uh but you would never imagine, you know. That was before he won any grand slams You'd never imagine that be that good. So that's my that's my first first memory of him and um and I uh, you know, being friendly with him or friends with him all these years and watched his family grow and four kids and friends with his mom and dad and, and uh, he had a beautiful family and uh, he deserves all the, uh, all the success
1: he It Must have been a great privilege Jen, to hand him his first title when he won down in Australia.
0: Yeah, you know, I get, I get the privilege of not handing over the trophy, which I very much enjoy because I'll leave that to someone else. But I do get the privilege of, uh, of talking to them right, right after the match and, and chatting to them a little bit about it. But I don't think they will, any of those players don't remember it because really it's about them and their success. And, and, uh, it's a lot of fun being up close and personal and seeing their reaction because it's just. It validates all the work that, and the effort and the pain and the sacrifices that they've made to get to that point. And you see it on their face. You see the depth in their eyes. And it didn't just happen. You know, this is something that years and years of work to get to. So it's really pretty cool to see that. It's unbelievable.
1: Let's briefly touch on this whole your role as obviously your role as CEO of Tennis Australia and of uh, the Aussie Open and the COVID situation. So first of all, you were lucky looking back to have the 2020 Aussie Open, which was a great tournament. But moving forward to 2021, how's it looking for you guys?
0: You know, we're all in this like environment of an unprecedented environment of great uncertainty. And, um, you know, I think we've We've started out with a with a health crisis and now kind of flipping to an economic crisis with an ongoing health crisis. So everyone is, is and unfortunately, there's very sad stories of families and people that have lost their lives to this, this horrific virus. But we were lucky to have the Australian Open in January. We did have pandemic insurance like Wilmerton. I think we were the two slams that had it. So... So, if it didn't happen, we would have been all right. we were insured, so that was positive. but with that being said, you know we, the the bushfires now seem a long distance memory because we had a crisis on our hand in the bushfires and um and all the smoke and then we had uh, in the last five days of the event, we had the beginning of the coronavirus and and we had to you know had to get advice from infectious disease specialists, and at that point, it wasn't you know, there was no one identified this as going to be a worldwide issue and and it causes these, these significant health issues at that point. So, so we had our challenges, and there was some there was some visitation that was cancelled because of it. So we had our challenges, but we at least got it off. And as far as twenty twenty one goes, uh, the grand slams and major sports rely on two things: they rely on international travel, and they rely on mass gatherings. Now, you could still have your sport without the mass gatherings, but it's. It's pretty boring, actually. I don't know if you've looked at it. <laughs> I don't. It's,
1: I have. I saw some German tennis this week. It was terrible, and I saw Dreddy uh, play some unbelievable shots. Dustin Brown, and
0: he's he's just like there's nobody clapping here. It's dead. To make that exciting is challenging, and I think we've what we've got to do is you've got to work through you know how we can. Get people in the stands somehow, maybe that's social distance in some way, and how we can get players traveling around the world to go from um yeah. you know, to go from to, from country to country. And I I think those it's gonna take a while for those to come back. And as a result, uh, we're planning for a number of different scenarios. I don't think we'll have an Australian Open like we had this year because already we're halfway through the year and, and we're still worrying about whether people can come. And uh so we'll either have an Australian Open that's uh you know we' found a way to bring in international people, but it may only be may only be Australian audience because Australia's handled this crisis pretty well, and we've got a very low mortality rate and a low infection rate and in some of our states they've had you know like three four weeks of no infections so we 're slowly coming back um, in fact community sport completely opens up next week and so um so so within Australia I think it'll be it won't be a problem but the you know it's bringing players in and and uh and when you have people sitting right next to each other. So those are the challenges. So so I, I'm I'm optimistic. I generally I, I like to look at things that way. As I think that um the uh my optimism is um is buoyed in the fact that I think we'll have some solutions for people to travel and and uh we'll have an Australian open in January, but it may not look exactly like the one we just had.
1: Do you think the French and uh the US are gonna go ahead this year? In some capacity. I think it would be
0: very difficult. I hope so. I hope so for, for tennis and for them. And I certainly hope so. And we'll do whatever we can to help them make that happen. But you, you have to look at it now and you say, you know, it's a few months away to make it. decision. It was probably a month away from making a decision. But unless you have some really, you know, it's New York and it's still problematic there. And, and in Paris... Um, I, I just don't know if players are going to travel, and I, just, I don't know if uh, people are going to going to watch it uh, in the stands. So it's, I think it. it, it um, I'm hoping it's not too soon because I hope it happens.
1: I'm hoping too it happens, but I, from my side, I can't see it happen from reading a bit of research on between all the contractors you have to imply and various things. They're like three or four months out. You have to get these things sealed off. Yeah, I think just a bad year for tennis. But and what about from your role as? As a uh, CEO of Tennis Australia, for the likes of coaches, are you guys doing anything to help coaches who aren't working?
0: You know, the industry really gets hurt by this. We we, we partnered with the government, and we put a support package for all the coaches. So, uh, and it's called a, it's a job a job keeper or job seeker program, and and each coach can apply for seven hundred and fifty dollars. Um, every week, $1,500 every two weeks uh, for the next six months and pretty much 98% of our coaches were eligible for that. So so we supported that and then we also put a uh, because we knew this was going to be a really tough environment for the coaches, even from an advice and from a mental health and well-being point of view, we put a program in place, uh, a free service for uh, like like a helpline and hotline for coaches that they could access anytime 24-7 that they wanted to just talk on personal issues but also business issues. And, um, and now in the that was part of the crisis phase. And now we're in the recovery phase we're supporting the coaches and the clubs coming back through through marketing material and, and through um, you know really how to get back, how to follow all the health guidelines. And still run your business. Coaches, many coaches are already back at it, so it's been a short window. They've been out, and and they'll still be able to take advantage of all those benefits all the way through till September the thirtieth.
1: Great. That's yeah. That's means so much. Like I know the LTA have done great as well. They've done similar to yourself, and it's just it's tough times for people in the tennis industry. So it's great that you're doing that. But I, we're just gonna we we'll end this soon. I just have two questions that were asked for from our Instagram fans. One is from Ollie, a young kid over in Ireland here.
0: What would you say has been your favourite moment from a tournament you've ever directed? I'm lucky. I've had so many good moments. Um, Probably the one that I remember the most was when Rafa Nadal played against David Ferrer. They're very good friends. It was one of those times when Rafa's got one of the most beautiful personalities in the game. and, and And I remember at the very beginning of the match, he got injured and he went into the, the room on the side of the court, uh, which he sees the physician and I ran around the stadium. The crowd's waiting outside. David Freire's still waiting outside. And the doctors said to me, "There's no Ruffa cannot play. There's no way he can play. And uh, and Rafa heard that conversation or saw that conversation. He said, no, 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 he's playing. And, uh, and he went out, he played, finished the match, lost in three sets. But he didn't, I think he did that because he didn't want his friend David Ferrer to not beat him or not have an opportunity to legitimately get to the semifinals. And I also think that he didn't want to let the crowd down because the crowd had bought a ticket to watch him and Ferrer. And I think this is probably commonplace for Ruff in his career, but I got to experience that firsthand. And all the values you try and teach in kids about never giving up, about you know showing some empathy and learn from others. And about just work as hard as you can. Those things just came to the top of top of the tree, like so clearly, right in front of my own eyes. And uh, so, you know, from that point, I always had a great deal of respect for him. But that point, I had, you know, another level of respect for for him as a person. And uh, and so that was that was a pretty cool moment that I remember from an emotional point of view. But but I've been lucky. I've had I've had good and bad moments and challenging and scary ones, but but most of them will be fantastic.
1: Thank you very much for that. And how stressful does it get over? There? I know there's a lot of stress leading up to it. It's a year-long project,
0: but when do you find the most stressful part of the few weeks? I think it's the first day when everything's done and you've got to open the gates and like 70,000 people got to come to the gates. And I think I just stand there and I block my ears and close my eyes and just hope the gates open and people come in and it's fun and they have a good time. So, but we've got a great team so uh probably my the biggest stress is trying to keep the team you know let them having a good time loving their jobs you know because one of the things we promote is that if you don't enjoy what you're doing, the people that you're trying to um help and trying to present to they won't enjoy it either so it's keeping people motivated and and having them find good times um and uh and and really enjoy what they're doing and and uh you know and I I care a great deal about people, and so the stress is always when people, you know, get hurt or they lose a tennis match. Or, uh, so it, it's tough, uh, you know, for for everyone. And this this period now is is, is a tough one because because people's jobs are getting impacted, their livelihood, and and it's a different world, and it's going to be a different world moving forward. It's going to be very different things that we're going to have to do. But I think it's going to be gonna, it's going to be a great world. I think there's a a, a great opportunity moving forward that um, that we haven't had, you know. Uh, in a long time and I think in many ways it's going to be the great realization and uh, realization of um, you know how we're treating our environment how we're communicating with people what time we're spending with family and uh, what quality time we're spending them how much we're on our screens and, and I, I mean there's a list of things which I think hopefully we come out of this crisis with better prepared governments for you know supporting the the health of the, of its nation and I think the outcome and, you know, is going to be ultimately is going to be more respect for each other and, and more help to each other and, and more realization that this self-centered world that we live in uh, is going to change. And our heroes now become you know, the frontline people, the people, whether it be the people, you know the nurses and the doctors and the teachers and the fire people and, and the, the service people, the community. Those are our heroes.
1: Definitely. The, the respect for them has even gone up even more. Like they've been at the front of this and they're doing an amazing job. Just we go get on to our last question here. Uh, this is a bit more business related question, but it's from uh, Sebastian Lavi from the Lavi Tennis Academy in New Zealand.
0: In your opinion, what's the best way to develop a business that focuses on high performance tennis? Yeah, it's a good question because you don't. If you're running a business it's hard to make money on that business because most people that when they become good they get often free coaching or they they're not paying for it someone else is paying for it and I and I've always said that if when you're running a business and I and I ran I ran a business in in the US when you're running a business our business was a combination. You've got to have and even at Boloteri's when Nick Boloteri started at the IMG, which is now the IMG Academy in Bradenton, Florida, when when Boloteri started, he would have camps, you would have clinics, you'd have adult sessions, you would have drill and plays, you'd have all sorts of programs, and that would be his money maker and that would make about up 90% of his business and then the 10% over here that he loved to do that would fund the opportunities for the high performance players and the ones players that weren't good enough had to pay i think it's a combination you either run a program where you have you know 40 players and the ones that are are not quite there yet they've obviously got, they've got to pay a fee and and the great ones the better ones that help bring those kids you offer them you offer them free coaching but normally the best way to do it is to underpin it with other sources of revenue. And the other sources of revenue are very much are things like uh, coaching, just general coaching, general programming.
1: It's, you sort of want to get in it for the dream of coaching these high-performance players, but you're right. You need to do the other things to pay the bills and to allow you to do those things. Craig, thank you very much. Appreciate your time. Hope to see you down there. Probably won't be in 2021, I'll be honest. And you'll probably say you won't let me in in 2021. But uh, <laughs> no. hopefully, and I have been telling Stu, you have to get down there. He goes, oh, the kids, the wife, you know, I go, you bring them all down there. It's an amazing place. And so I'll do my best to drag him down there. He said he does meet up with you in London, is it?
0: Yeah, exactly. Come on down and have a look. I mean, 2021, we may be traveling normally and coming down normally. So everyone from Ireland is always welcome. We'll always give, give you guys a good time. And uh, it's a fun event. We'll keep making it fun. We've got lots of great plans for the future and we're doing a multi-million dollar investment. We're still building it in these times. And we're, gonna, we, you know, we're just going to have a lot of fun here in the next few years and making this even more special. So everyone's got to come down and have a visit.
1: Great. I'll be back then. Thank you very much. Hope you enjoyed that. I really did. Some very great bits of advice there. And he's totally true what he says about the hard work, being able to listen and never give in. They are essential properties for any successful athlete, business person, and even family member. So so I hope you picked up some bit of advice from Craig, but it was great to speak to him and great to see that they're doing everything they can for the Aussie Open 2021 to happen. I'll be back next week. But before you go, make sure you give us a follow on Instagram at the Functional Tennis Podcast. And until next week, goodbye.